I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thanks for subscribing to our new podcast. We recorded this one back in January when Mrs. M had just returned from snowy Davos. We thought you'd like to hear it now as we're taking a break for Easter. We will be back in early May with our latest episode featuring Anya Hindmarsh, and the Earl of Shaftesbury. Now back to Davos. Happy listening. Welcome to Irreverent Questions with Mrs. Moneypenny. I'm Carola Hoyos, her slightly less irreverent editor at the Financial Times. Mrs. M has returned from Davos and unpacked a carry-on bag stuffed full of tapes, uh, audio clips. Frankly, I am surprised she wasn't charged for overweight baggage. But fear not, I've edited the clips, and we'll be interrupting them with some serious and not-so-serious debate surrounding today's question. That is, Davos, is it really worth the hassle? We're in the offices of Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator magazine, who experienced his first World Economic Forum meeting this year. Next stop, Davos Dorf. Let's start on the train to the Swiss Alpine village of Davos. Mrs. Moneypenny found herself in the seat next to Matt Hansen, a professor at the University of Maryland. My research is on satellite-based uh, mapping of the Earth's surface and how it changes over time. So we have what are called Earth observation satellites taking pictures of the Earth, and uh, we can document deforestation, urbanization, natural hazards, uh, all, water inundation. So you can see who the bad guys are too? Well, you, well, ours is not at a particular scale where we can see actual actors, but uh, we can see actions, and uh, we can see where oil palm is going into uh, Southeast Asian rainforest, where soybeans going into Latin American rainforest, where old forests are being logged in Russia and Canada. So my, my theme in particular for this Davos is uh, forest. That's why I'm giving those examples. And, and the idea of systematically monitoring trends and how we're appropriating the natural forest to turn them into economic products. Because we work with a lot of developing countries, and when we go to Indonesia, we don't say what they're doing is bad or good. But we say, given this set of facts on how you are changing your, your natural system, uh, civil society, government, private industry, they all have the same frame of reference, and they can discuss what's the best way forward. Mrs. M and her carry-on have now disembarked, and she's talking to Linda Gratton of the London Business School, who's telling her about her experience. You know, they give you a notebook at the beginning, and I end up by almost filling the whole thing with notes. And some of, some of the ideas I use immediately, because I blog, and I will, I'll blog about this Davos, as I always do. And then the others, other ideas come out much later on, and it takes sometimes a, a year or two to, to come back and think about these things. But almost always, I get an idea of where, where the world is going. You know, this year, as you know, the whole theme is about the fourth revolution. So there's a huge number of academics who are working on robotics. There's a whole group of people who are working on cells. And so even by looking at the academics who've been invited, it gives you a flavour of what's really important. And what's really important right now is artificial intelligence, robotics, and this nanotechnologies. And that's where the world's going? 
Well, yeah, that is where the world is going. And uh, I ran a session last year with a whole bunch of AI experts. And that was reported, you know, as terrible thing that was happening and robots were going to take over the world. And actually, I think those are the sort of conversations we're having, really, were how, do, how does mankind use robots and artificial intelligence to their service to augment them as opposed to simply replace them? And I think that's an important question. It's one that's being debated today. Well, as Linda and I are sitting here, we can see yet another helicopter bringing another captain of industry or another world leader over the valley. And um, I was just thinking, you know, maybe one day that helicopter will be flown by a robot and maybe we'll see robots in Davos. I think it probably already is. <laughs> And when we do see robots in Davos, will they be wearing a black trouser suit? There is a robot in Davos. Oh, really? Oh, yes, there is already one in the conference centre. And I don't know if she's wearing a black trouser suit. I is it a seen, she? I haven't seen her yet. No, I'm afraid it's a he. I was just doing that for poetic <laughs> licence. <laughs> oh, well, I love you. You'll have to tell me about this robot. Uh, I shall, you've, After yes, you've encountered I'll, it. I shall. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to it. I look forward to many more Davoses with you. Yeah. Fraser, do you think that Indonesian politicians and peanut butter CEOs came away from Matt Hansen's talk thinking we must redouble our efforts in making, let's say, palm oil harvesting sustainable? They're there, I'm, I suspect, primarily to meet their counterparts in faraway countries. This is what Davos does. It brings together people from all around the world in whatever sphere of um, work you might want to mention. And they will probably feed off each other. There'll be cross-fertilisation of ideas. This is true for the academics, it'll be true certainly for the, for the journalists who are out there, and true for the business people who are going out there to meet their clients. I mean, Davos is a, primarily the world's greatest networking event, and the discussions it comes some degree behind in terms of importance. Let's hear what some of the capitalists had to say about why they came to Davos. First up, we have Brian Hartzer, who's the CEO of Westpac, Australia's biggest bank. That's one of the realities of living in Australia is that you need to travel. Um, you need to stay connected. It is a long way away. And so I find uh, I get a lot out of these types of, of visits. Um, and, and increasingly, our economy is, is very tied to what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, we see our role as a bank as being fundamentally about supporting the development of the Australian economy. And so it's therefore very important that we have an understanding of how the world economy and, and ultimately the Australian economy are evolving and the role we need to play in that. So will you get to meet other CEOs of other banks? Yes, well, in fact, I've just been with one uh, from a, a big U.S. bank, and uh, that is a huge part of it for me, is the chance to compare notes with people at other institutions. And we, banking is an industry that faces a lot of similar challenges around the world, whether it's regulation or reputation. So understanding how others are thinking about that and uh, what they're learning and what we can apply in our own market is very helpful. As a new CEO, um, it's particularly valuable for me. I have to say, um, it's not anywhere near as glamorous as I suspect people think. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are some really super glamorous hotels around, but, um, but it's a lot of fun to be here. It's, it's very stimulating. And now we're going to hear from Don Baer, the chairman of Burson Marsteller. You might be interested to know that in a previous life, when he was head of communications in the White House, Don was the person that the character Toby was based on in the West Wing. So we're all here to sort of uh, sweep away the cold in the dark, right? That's what this <laughs> yes, is about. that's right. But I, I think it's enormously valuable to them. I mean, first off, you can't be here and be exposed to the many different kinds of people here, opinions, points of view, without learning. And believe, believe it or not... They also even, need to learn? Even CEOs need to learn. In <laughs> fact, perhaps especially CEOs need to learn. 
Um, and so uh, Davos is a place where that is uh, perhaps more possible uh, than, than just about any other place that these world leaders uh, come. Um, so much of the interaction, especially at the level of CEO uh, that you engage in, uh, is, is rarely face-to-face. Right? It's, it's over conference calls. It's through video conferences, which are good. Um, uh, it's through email. Uh, it's through written documents. This is a place where you can actually have the human touch and interaction and the ability to uh, sit down and, and have a real conversation, particularly for those people who are responsible for leading these big organizations, these big institutions, the, the opportunity to do that. Uh, and to do that here in a concentrated way uh, is enormously valuable. So, Fraser, do you really think that these people are here for what goes on in the convention centre? Or do you think it all happens in the corridors and the parties? I think they're there to claim a bit of learning from the panels and the discussions. This is how anybody at Davos justifies the huge expense of going out there. The real reason will be to, to network, which is a perfectly legitimate capitalist endeavour, and this is how the great wheels of capitalism are oiled. It's a, a sight to behold. Um, but some of the discussions are the, the topics, for example, the fourth industrial revolution. What on earth does that mean? It's so vague as to be borderline um, pointless. But what I learned at Davos was it doesn't need to have a point. You could call this the future of Mickey Mouse and what he means for capitalism. They'd still come in their tens of thousands, and quite right too. Mrs Moneypenny makes the trip to Davos every year with her business partner, Bill Heyman. Is it worth it? Absolutely. There's, it's exhilarating. It's, you see a, a lot of people, the concentration of very high-powered, interesting, thoughtful people. You can't find all that in one place like this. So I, think it's, I think it's actually the most efficient thing we do all year. Fraser, this was your first Davos, of course. And what were your impressions other than the fact that £52 for a hamburger was a bit expensive? Well, I don't think I've ever seen such a concentration of wealth. It would be difficult to describe, actually, even to people who who regularly read the FT. I mean, when I got there, I was in a traffic jam of limousines for half an hour. I've never seen anything quite like it. And also, it is... Uh, the rumours are true. You get into a cable car, then you're next to a former American defence secretary. It's like Madame de Swords for business people, except the waxworks are real. And you can try and nobble them and talk to them if you want. I was in the same hotel as Queen Rania of Jordan. She was staying only four rooms down from me. Um, which is fun. It's, uh, Did you go and knock on her door? I was thinking about it, trying to get it, because if I was a proper journalist like you, Miss Moneypenny, <laughs> I would be saying, give me an interview now, you know, and that's a, and you're actually torn as a journalist there and thinking, am I going to leave this person to enjoy their sandwich, or am I going to go in there and just try to get a quote out of them? But even if you say nothing, you can learn a lot. So I sat down for a cup of coffee, then Richard Branson sat down behind me, and then proceeded to very loudly bemoan the fact that his net worth had gone down by several... 100 million over the last few days. This has been the crash. I was able to hear a Dragon's Den pitch to um, Sir Richard. So it was just fascinating being able to see and hear how the great great and the good and the plutocrats and the politicians actually do their business. They can't really hide anywhere. 
Davos is so small that it's very easy to eavesdrop because you can't really have private conversations. It's difficult so much as to go for a burger without picking up a great piece of gossip. PRs and politicians would have us journalists concentrate on the do-good aspect of Davos, with celebrities such as Bono and Leonardo DiCaprio adding the glitz while promoting causes from eradicating poverty to the environment. Let's hear from Sarah Brown, the wife of our former Prime Minister, who's working in the whole area of education. But the, the cost, when it's on your doorstep in Lebanon, to get a Syrian child into school is about $500 a year. So this is not an unimaginable prospect to achieve it. And so far, money has come in from the uh, UK government, Norway, uh, the US has, has stepped up, um, various other countries have, have been pledging amounts of money. We've had all of the big NGOs uh, working to bring in public support, which has been very overwhelming. But this is now where the private sector gets to play its part too. Everyone has to work together. And Davos is the place where the private sector meets. So this is where there's the opportunity for those conversations and people make their pledges and also to be seen to be making their pledges and get a bit of credit for it. I'm going to read you a quote from Henry Mintzberg, who actually wrote the book that I had to study at my MBA, so I mean, he must be quite old now. But he just, he's a professor at McGill in Montreal, and he described Davos as the event where the people who spend all year causing all our problems take a few days pretending to try and fix them. Do you think that's fair? Certainly not. They don't pretend. My critique of Davos is that the solutions are not coming from the guys at the top of capitalism. They're coming from the market, from the millions of people involved in capitalism. Who are, and, and the funny thing is that you can sit down in Davos and try to work out what is the, which way is the world going. You won't know. If you look at what Davos was discussing before the crash, none of them saw the crash happening. That's the way the world works. That's the way capitalism works. And yet the whole of Davos is kind of on this basis that it is possible to sit and the, um, in the cockpit and look at the horizon and see what's about to come. Now, the world is a little bit too complex for that to, to work. But nonetheless, it's nice to try. And um, hearing from um, Sarah Brown there, but this, that's a great reminder of this other sort of Clinton-esque philanthrocapitalism industry which has crept up. Now, no, they're doing good work. They're absolutely right, but they should try to get money for the various charities, money from Bill Gates, money from governments, and try to um, solve some of the world's problems. The more people that are trying to bring solutions to the world's problems, the better. There should be a contestability of ideas. And where Davos is good is that it actually means that you do get... Um, Take the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, one of the most consequential foundations, I think, since the Rockefeller Foundation. They're coming here to compete with governments to try to find solutions. Now, that's a good thing. But Davos, you know, it is a massive networking event which discusses how to save the world and very seldom comes up with the answers. But to the extent that they try, I don't think you, you can really blame them for trying now that we've delved into the more serious aspects of Davos, I want to ask you what advice you would give to anyone going for the first time next year. But before I do, let's hear what some of those I spoke to in Davos said about this. It's such a, a big word here, cornucopia of opportunity, of people to meet, of, of things to learn from, of, of events to attend. Uh, you do have to pick and choose and, and pace yourself. So I think that's very important for everyone. Uh, I also advise everyone, uh, when you have the opportunity to eat, you should eat, right? Because you're moving so quickly, you need that energy. When I think if you want to get the most out of it, you need to plan, you need to think through uh, what sort of experiences you want, what kind of sectors you want to be exposed to, 
which kinds of individuals and which specific people you want to have those conversations with. And last of all, do they ever ask you for wardrobe advice? Everyone always wants to know what's the appropriate thing to wear at Davos. There's no question about that. That's one of the harder things, right? You, you want to be careful that you don't stand out too much. I have noticed that dress is loosening up a little bit uh, okay. over the years. I have noticed that dress is loosening up, but footwear is not. Really? Yes. I actually have noticed... <laughs> Well, well, footwear not loosening up, right? But yes. I have noticed people are wearing their boots indoors more than they used to. Yes, right? they used to carry used around to be, a pair of shoes. And, I'm, yeah. I'm carrying my shoes right now <laughs> with my boots. I've decided that uh, what's the point, right? No one really is looking down. It's certainly not at my feet. So what difference is it? Well, thank you very much indeed, Don. That's fantastic. What about you, Fraser? What's your top tip for what to wear? Two words, rubber soles. That's all you need, really. Um, it's not that cold. Uh, not if you're Scottish, anyway. I'm very taken with your office, particularly, I have to say, the collection of whiskey. Oh, yeah. Oh, which I have to... It's obviously a must for every magazine editor to have a collection. I of. haven't offered you a dram yet. Before you offer me a whiskey at this time <laughs> in the afternoon, um, can I just ask you five parting questions? Can I ask you one thing that you never forget to take on a business trip? My iPad, actually, is amazing how many things I can do with that on a six-hour flight. What's your favourite app? It is Flipboard. So it's like a magazine with articles recommended by everybody that you follow on Twitter. I can find out what's happening in the Scottish Highlands. I can find out what American economists are saying. I can find out what's happening in Westminster. One day, all magazines will be looking that way and I will be out of a job. What's the most important attribute to have in your line of work, i.e. as the editor of a magazine? You need to have a wide radar, I guess. I mean, um, the Spectator readers are interested in a whole bunch of things with interests far wider than my personal ones. So every week I've got to work out what would they really want to find out, not just about politics and economics, but about uh, travel, about opera, about um, culture in general. So you need to be able to see the world through the incredibly wide lens of the average spectator reader. Who's your favourite writer or thinker? I'm going to say Thomas Sowell, because he isn't mentioned nearly enough by people here. I think he's absolutely brilliant um, economist, absolutely brilliant um, columnist, and if more people had read his book Basic Economics, the world would not be in the mess that it is. In terms of the rewards that your job gives you, how would you rank money experience and influence? Um, number three is money. There isn't really much money in journalism and anybody who thinks there is is quickly disillusioned. Um, the next best thing is the influence. It's always nice to think that your writing can change things for the better somehow. But experience is number one. I mean, being a journalist is a passport to a ringside seat of the most fascinating things that are happening in our country. If you're doing your job properly, you'll be able to just find, speak to the most incredibly interesting people, go and see the most incredible events, um, and I just can't think of a better job in the world. From the editor's office of The Spectator magazine in central London, I'm Mrs Moneypenny, columnist and headhunter. I'm Carol Ahoyos, editor of the FT's executive appointment section. And I'm Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator, and let's have a whiskey. <laughs> I love the way you've written his Sorry, name the wrong way around. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.